Hello and welcome to Trainer Tools. I'm John Tomlinson and this is the Christmas special podcast which is exactly the same as all the other podcasts except it's released in December. In this episode I'm speaking to Larry Reynolds who's been on the podcast a couple of times before and we're talking about the future of the training facilitator and in particular looking at some of Larry's experiments that he's done in using social networks and online collaboration tools in order to try and reinforce learning, transfer learning back to the workplace. We're back here with Larry Reynolds. Hello, Larry. How are you? I'm great, thanks, John. I understand you're enjoying the Yorkshire summer. Uh, such as it is, yes. It's pretty pretty wet and rainy here just as we come to the end of July, but uh, hopefully it'll change when I'm off camping next week. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And it's changed for the better. Um, you've been on this podcast a couple of times before. Um, we've had a couple of podcasts before with uh, storytelling and role plays, which are really good podcasts. So I would really recommend anybody listening to this to go back and listen to those. And what is it you wanted to talk about today? What I'm really interested in, John, is the way that the role of the trainer is changing as the whole world of learning and development changes in the 21st century. And I'd like to talk a little bit about what I think some of those changes are and then describe uh, an experiment I've been conducting with uh, taking a, a slightly different approach to training with one of the courses that I've been doing. Okay, that sounds interesting. So can you tell us how you're going to structure it? Well, I'll talk a little bit about the traditional role of the trainer, how most trainers have delivered training in the 20th century, a little bit on how I think the world of learning development is changing and the impact that has on those of us that deliver training courses. And then finally, I'll talk about an experiment I've done with including some online learning and some uh, social learning in some of the training that I've been doing and to share some of the results, both uh, some of the, the um, disappointments and some of the successes from that. I just want to ask you, first of all, you used the word trainer, which I use as well on this podcast. It's called Trainer Tools. And I have been challenged on that in the past when people have said that word sort of underplays the role and facilitator is a better word because it better explains the role. What do you think about that? Why did you use the word trainer? Well, I think the word trainer for me very well describes someone who goes into a room with a bunch of other people who are often called participants or delegates sometimes and engages them in some kind of learning activity for usually it's at least an hour or so and sometimes it's a day and sometimes longer. I think facilitator is quite a good description as well, though for me a facilitator is a broader term. You can be a meeting facilitator, you can be working with a group of people and helping them to make some sort of plan. That's a bit different to training. For me, a, a, a trainer or a facilitator of training is someone who is enabling some real learning to happen. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the central focus of the activity. So I think, I think trainer covers that quite well. Although, as, as, as you'll hear shortly, I'm, I'm quite critical of some of the more traditional approaches to training. Oh, interesting that that's how you would define it, that the trainer's about specifically creating learning. I like that. Yeah, although with with all of these things, I think different people have different definitions. Uh, I don't particularly claim to be a coach, but uh, when I've talked to other people about what's the difference between coaching and mentoring, 
although often coaching is the, the person who asks the questions and mentor is the person who gives the advice, there's no clear-cut definition of that either. In fact, a lot of people who earn their living as executive coaches do, I think, a fair bit of mentoring. So I think with all of these things, there are different ways of interpreting the words. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think people that get belligerent about these definitions are just making it up as they go along, <laughs> which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but as a settled term, I'm quite happy with trainer to mean a kind of a workplace learning specialist. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Okay, so when you're talking about the role of the trainer, you are talking about it in that perspective, which would include facilitation sometimes. Yeah, I'm really thinking about the the role of the person who's there in a room with a bunch of people trying to facilitate or enable some kind of learning experience. And I guess in most of the latter half of the 20th century, people who were trainers pretty much did that. They rolled up they were in a room with a bunch of other people. They delivered some material. And at best, they delivered material that was relevant to the participants. And they did it in an engaging way. So it wasn't just talking at people. It was uh, a range of uh, delivery, a range of interactive ex exercises, debriefing, discussion, perhaps particular kind of uh, models were discussed that enabled the people there to learn some particular skills or knowledge. And traditionally, trainers did that and at the end of the day they went home and the learners went off and did what they did or didn't do with with the material and trainers traditionally weren't really very interested in in what people did afterwards in part because it was very difficult to know it was very very difficult to measure you're saying then about the fact that the, the boundary of trainer and in this scenario, we're talking about a good trainer who's doing quite engaging and interactive stuff. But the boundary stopped at the end of the day, five o'clock, door closed, I'm off. Is yeah, that where you're going with this idea about the fact that the, the job has changed? Yes, I think, it, yes, it is. And the reason for that was partly that it was very difficult to measure the changes afterwards. Many of the listeners to this podcast will be familiar with Kirkpatrick's uh, model for evaluating training. Of course, yeah. And, 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 Level one is about what reaction did people have to it? Level two is what did they learn? Level three is broadly how did they change their behavior? And level four is broadly how does that then impact on the organization they're working in? And although many trainers still do hand out evaluation forms at the end, that really usually only addresses level one, the reactions people had to the training. And the thing about measuring changes of behavior and measuring the impact on the organization is that it's often very time-consuming or difficult to do that. And even if you do measure changes, it's often very hard to know, was that as a result of the training or was it a result of something else? So until really the, the early years of the 21st century, although trainers talked about transfer of learning and making the learning stick and that kind of thing, they weren't really able either to do much about it or or, or to measure the impact. Yeah, I've, I've always felt it's kind of measurement for the sake of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite box so. ticky. Yes, yeah. So that's that's the situation we were in. The other thing about traditional training at the back end of the 20th century, first few years of the 21st century, is that the content was very much decided by the trainer. Although often a certain amount of 
what used to be called training needs analysis and then became learning needs analysis happened, very, very often the content of a training course is largely determined by the person delivering it. And in some cases, if that person was an expert and knew their stuff and researched the needs of their audience well, that would be very, very good and focused. And in some cases, frankly, that content was not very good. And I think at its worst, uh, trainers, particularly those trainers who are delivering a wide range of different courses without much expertise in any of them, often found themselves delivering sort of quite old-fashioned models that in some cases weren't very well researched and in some cases were, were frankly wrong. I, I think even today you still get the odd trainer claiming that only 7% of communication is based on the content of the words and the other 93% is all about kind of gesture and voice tone and that sort of thing. I was going to use uh, that example then as well. I was thinking exactly of that example yeah. when you said that. And and it's it's simply not true. It, it's a complete misunderstanding of Moravian's research. My other favourite is you still get trainers who say, well, back in 1953 in Yale University, 3% of people wrote written goals and they went on to become much more successful and earn more than the other 97% put, put together. And again, that's not just a misinterpretation of research. It's just an urban myth. It's completely untrue. It's just one of these stories that goes around. So without slacking off trainers too much, there has been in the past um, a minority of trainers whose content was not really as good as it should be. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. And that's where we got to as we started into the 21st century. But in the last few years, the internet has come of age and that is starting to have a huge impact on how people learn and a huge impact in particular on how people learn in organisations. And that's the traditional audience for, for traditional training. And I thought it would be useful to say a few things about how I think the impact the internet has impacted on training and development and then I'll go on to talk about some of my experiments in it. Yeah, go for it, yeah. So I think the first thing is that whereas in traditional training the participants really had to go on what the trainer said, in the new world of learning based on the internet there's massive, massive learner choice. Uh, one of the things I do on my training courses is teach people how to deliver feedback. If you Google how to give feedback, there are over a billion results, uh, 1 billion uh, and 10 million results, I think Google returned when I, when I tried it a few moments ago. If you go onto YouTube, there are 141,000 YouTube videos on how to give feedback. So whereas in the past, learners were very much restricted to the trainer in the room, now there's a huge amount of choice in terms of what learning material is available. And that's both an incredibly good thing in that there's lots of choice, lots of stuff to go for, but also in some ways quite daunting because if there are 141,000 YouTube videos on how to give feedback, how do you decide which one to, to watch? I was going to say, it's going to take you a while to get through, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that has implications on the whole world of learning development. The second key difference, I think, is that the internet has meant that learning can happen in small chunks just in time. You don't have to 
book on a training course and sit there for a whole day or even half a day if there's something you want to learn. You can go on the internet right now and get a four-minute video on it or an article that reads you that takes you 10 minutes to read. So that kind of small chunks, just-in-time stuff is, is another feature of, of learning that the internet can provide. The third thing is very much about peer-to-peer -peer learning. Whereas the traditional role of the, of, of the trainer has been the expert at the front of the room, uh, in the internet, a lot of the, the content that's provided there is other people like you. And indeed, through networking, particularly social networks, you can learn directly from peers. So if you want to learn how to give feedback to a colleague at work, you don't even need to read a, an article or look at a, a, a YouTube video that someone else has made. You can go on Facebook, you could go on LinkedIn, you can go on probably your own organization has some kind of internal network. You can ask your colleagues, you know, what works for you? What, what, what tips have you got for me? And use their learning. So the whole thing of peer-to-peer -peer learning becomes much easier uh, uh, with the internet. But again, as with that massive choice, there is a bit of a question about who do you trust? Who who can you trust to do things? Yeah, you've got the, the which is the same with anything on the internet, like news. Well, news content is a good example, because then you've got to choose who curates this vast amount of data. Who do you pick as your curator? Well, that's right. And it's interesting, John, you've used the word curator, because one of the big uh, changes within the world of L&D, learning development, is that learning and development professionals are moving away from being content providers. They're moving away from the people who say this is how it is and more towards being, some people use the word orchestrators, but I like the word curators of content. And that doesn't just mean picking it out. It also means filtering it to choose the content that's going to be most appropriate. But it also means adding value, relating that content to the particular needs of your own participants. So curating is is quite an active process. And I think that's that's one thing that certainly people who have a broader L&D role rather than just, just delivering training courses, that, that uh, curatorial role is becoming increasingly important. Is that something that you see as the future of the the L&D professional? I think within L&Ds, yes, I think, I think that's highly likely to happen. And indeed, um, many organisations are already saying, do we need to employ people to deliver training courses, either full-time on, on our staff or bringing in external independent trainers or training companies? Do we need to pay these people when for free we can see the very best people delivering similar inputs, on a video or through articles or in some other way uh, online. So I think uh, certainly for L&D people who are attached to organisations, they will see their role move much more towards curating rather than uh, delivering content themselves. I think that, 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 that's very much the case. And indeed, as, I, as I'll go on to explain in a moment, I think that has a no there are some knock-on effects for those of us that do still continue to deliver courses as well. Well, I, I don't know if I'm preempting what you're going to say next, but what, what do you think that will look like when you say the L&D curator or the content curator, whatever we call it, what will that actually look like? I think it will be uh, um, rather than allowing people in an organisation just to go onto the internet and kind of Google the stuff they want, there will be some kind of filtering of that. So maybe it will be your organization's own learning and development portal. Maybe it will be some resources that are attached to a particular uh, course, but it, it will be some kind of gateway, some portal 
to to information that is that is filtered and selected in, in some way and and I will when I talk about my kind of experiment I'll I'll, uh, I'll talk about the particular mechanics I, I use for doing that I think there's just one other thing to say about the impact of um, the internet that apart from making these different kinds of learning more accessible there is also the issue of big data in other words in the past it's been quite difficult and often expensive to gather information and, and you talked about uh, Kirkpatrick evaluation the, the problem of, sort of gathering information about what change that's made that in the past has been has been quite difficult but the more data that appears online now the easier it is to do that so for example it would be quite feasible in an organization if you were running some kind of development program you could take one group put them through the development program and then measure from whatever metrics your company uses to measure performance how they're doing you could put another group and not give them the program or give them a different program and see what difference it makes so the whole notion of being able to get good solid information about the impact of training that that's changing as well and one um, I mean, one kind of really interesting it's a, bit, it's a bit quirky but i thought it was very interesting there's a, um, a spin-off company from the massachusetts institute of technology called sociometric solutions and they've developed what they call badges it's it's essentially it's a small little device you you hang around your neck and it measures the kind of social interactions you have at work. It measures your voice tone, your proximity to other people, the amount you speak. It provides a huge amount of data on how you are interacting with other people. And I've not used one, but what the company claims is this enables people to uh, measure more accurately the effect of that interpersonal skills training, the sort of soft skills training that many, many of us in the training world know intuitively is very important, but we haven't really got a great way of measuring what impact it has. And this this little device apparently is is a way of measuring that. So you can see how people's almost like measuring their, their emotional intelligence in action through some sort of device. Now, I'm not sure uh, what will happen to that, and I'm not sure whether I like the idea of wearing one either. It feels a bit creepy to me in some ways, but I think it's an example of how technology can can change the whole learning development field. Yeah, it's an interesting example, and I don't know how convinced I am by it either. But you know, even if it doesn't work, it's still a it's still an interesting step forward, isn't it? Well, it's just an interesting thing to think about how how data is being used to measure different kinds of stuff. There's there's a wonderful book by Dave Eggers called The Circle, which is a kind of dystopia, really, set in the near future based on the notion that um, kind of Apple and Google and Facebook, they all become one big organization that own all our data. And interestingly, one of the, the, the themes in that story is about people being encouraged to, in, in the interest of greater transparency and honesty, to, to hang little devices around the net that, that record all their interactions with people. It'd be interesting to think of uh, if politicians did that, wouldn't it? But uh, anyway, that, we're going slightly uh, off topic. But I think that notion that that uh, technology enables us to get data and information on things that in the past we couldn't, I think is is quite interesting and certainly a trend, trend to watch. Yeah, absolutely. If we ignore the, the big brother aspect for the moment. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> Which, as you say, it's just slightly uncomfortable. But, you know, it, it, to illustrate the point, I think it makes sense what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I've been working in the field of learning development for 25 years now. And to be honest, most of that time, I've earned my living through delivering fairly traditional uh, training courses. And I thought it would be interesting to, to take some of these ideas about curating content, about peer-to-peer -peer learning, and to see if I could apply them to some of the work that, that, that I do. So what I'd like to describe to you very briefly is as an experiment I carried out with one of my programs to incorporate some peer-to-peer uh, uh, -peer learning in it and to incorporate some accessing and curating of other resources. So the program that I do is called Courageous Conversations and I, uh, I've often delivered it as a one-day program and it's really about the kind of conversations managers need to have with their staff at work. So it's things like how do you give great feedback, how do you set objectives, how do you build trust, how do you motivate people? How do you solve problems? How do you coach and develop people? That's that's the content of the program. So it's it's kind of soft skills stuff. And I've been delivering it for a number of years now. It's, it's evolved over time. But essentially, it's been a training-based program. Sometimes it's one day. Sometimes it's, it's longer and we go into more detail. But it's a training-based program. And at the end of it, uh, I get pretty good feedback. People say, oh, no, I really enjoyed it. And occasionally, really by chance, when I kind of bump into people who have been on previous courses of mine or an organisation where I've got a longer-term relationship, I get informally feedback that it is having an impact on uh, how people carry out those conversations at work and a positive impact. But that's as far as I've, I've really gone with it. So I thought it would be interesting to uh, incorporate an element of social learning in it, both to see if I can measure the impact of the programme and also to curate some other resources people might be interested in. So I um, ran seven pilot programs with seven different organisations, a couple from the private sector, a couple of health trusts, a university, a housing organisation and a local government organisation. And for each programme, I delivered a one day a Courageous Conversations training course. And then for the following six weeks, I gave the participants access to a private online forum. And the private online forum enabled them to do two things. First of all, it enabled them to access other resources relevant to Courageous Conversations. So I provided a number of resources I'd chosen. Some I had produced myself and some I'd taken from other people. So, for example, um, on the section on motivation, uh, I uh, talk about some of the work that Dan Pink has done about different kinds of internal versus external motivators. And one of the resources was a link to Dan Pink's website where they could look at him giving a talk and, and access a very good video on, on motivation. So it was a, a, a mixture of resources. So one thing was uh, to enable people to access these different resources. The other purpose was to enable them to talk to each other about what they were doing, how they were getting on with it, what successes they were having, what other information they would need, what help they would need, and, and generally to, to, to learn from each other. And it was an experiment. I've not done it before. And the experiment was to see, first of all, did people use it? Uh, secondly, if they did use it, in what way? What, what, what did they get out of it? And thirdly, to try and get some insight into uh, what would make that kind of approach most useful. So I was really building on the traditional di training delivered with putting in some, some online social learning and access to resources. And um, this was just some sort of open access 
platform? Um, no, the, I, mean, the, I mean accessible by the internet. When I say that, yes. Yeah, so the I, I, the each each pilot group, and there were between nine and twelve people in each group. They had access just to their own little forum. So uh, they it wasn't a forum for everyone on the program. It was a forum for their ten or eleven colleagues from their particular organisation. Right. Okay. And they I. I used two mechanisms because I wanted to try different variations. So for half of the groups, the access to that forum, I simply used a LinkedIn group. And that's a really… Um, Very easy. It's, it, it's easy. It, um, it's free. And it's got good sort of functionality. So so I used half of them I used the LinkedIn groups. And then the other half, I set up a forum on my own website. That took a bit more setting up, but it made it easier for me to make the links to the resources and and to to set things out uh, in in a, a more easily accessible way on that. So, do you want to know how what happened? And I uh, do, I do. That was yeah. my next question, <laughs> but I didn't want to. Um, I didn't know if you had anything else to say first. So I didn't want to jump in in my excitement to know what happened. <laughs> so, what I was interested in was so in in terms of take up, I've divided of those seven pilots. I wanted to. S- I've divided them into four groups. So there was the low take-up group. So there was the group where less than 20% of the people on the program accessed the forum to say that they'd, they'd done at least one thing with it. So that was my kind of baseline. I thought, well, if 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 one in five of the people at least do something with the learning on the course, that, that would be good. So that, that was my low group. Then I had a medium group where at least 25% of the people were accessing the forum, accessing the resources, and they had one or more conversation put, putting into practice the, the learning from the course. My third group was a high group, which was uh, 50% of the people were participating, and at least 50% had two or more conversations. And then finally, I had a very high group, which was 75% of people participating with at least three or more conversations. And um, I thought that was that was quite kind of uh, optimistic to get that level of participation. From yeah, groups. but anyway, that, absolutely. That, that was so um, of the seven groups, I'm I was rather pleased that I didn't have anyone in the low category. So with every group, um, at least a quarter of the people participated and did something with the course. And that's a long time ago. Two researchers called Detterman and Sternberg looked at the transfer of learning from work-based training courses back to the business. And they came up with a rough figure of 10%. They reckon that only 10% of learning from a traditional training course actually is put into action in the workplace. Obviously, there's huge variation on that. But as a baseline, that seems quite quite plausible to me. So the fact that I had... Um, in fact, two two of my pilots fell into that medium group, so it, it was twenty five percent recorded, one or more conversations. Three of my groups fell into the uh, the high group. In other words, at least half the people put at least had at least two conversations to put the stuff into learning. Um, what I was very pleased with was I had two of the pilots fell into the very high group. In other wow. words, more than three quarters of the people accessed uh, the forum access resources and had at least three courageous conversations as a, as a result of the course so it's quite a spread um but i was i was um i was very very pleased with the take up and of course very curious as to why two of those organizations fell into that very high group whereas 
three fell into the middle group and two fell into the in, into the medium group. Um, what's the link up with the actual platform? Did you get better take up on LinkedIn or better take up on your site or was there no statistical significance? I got better take up on my site and I think that was because it just felt easier for people to access. And that was partly that um, with LinkedIn, not everyone on the program was a member of LinkedIn. So for some people, I mean, it's very easy to join LinkedIn and it's a good thing to do, but some people had to kind of join LinkedIn first. And the just the look of my site was more obvious and easy to access the other resources or it was a bit more faff on, on the LinkedIn site. So I think having one of my key learnings was um, having a, making the access to the forum easy and attractive and distinctive re- really helps. That, 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 was what, that was one of the things there. Minimal, minimal faff. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's funny still... that, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that, that kind of, it, it's, I mean, you know yourself when you're accessing something online, even just a five-second delay of something is, is, is enough to put you off. You want it to be really, really easy and fast. So there were some kind of basic things about minimal faff. But the other, I think, the, the learning that is particularly relevant to your listeners is that there were three really key factors that pushed a group into a, a very high group rather than into a medium or a high group. And I'd like to say something about, about that f- that right now. So the first factor was about the what I would call pre-course expectations. So it was interesting that on both the groups that came into my medium category, in other words, it was only about a quarter of people really active it. On those groups, the way the course was set up internally was kind of like, here's a course on crazy conversations, please come along. And it was very much just come along to the course. Whereas on the groups, particularly in the very high category, it was explained that this program, which had a course component and an online component, was very much in line with some changes that the organisation was wanting to make in terms of its culture and the way it operated and um, other organisational um, initiatives going on. So in one of them, the organization was doing a big piece on employee engagement. So this program fitted in very well. In the other organization, they were doing a big piece on cultural change, wanting people to have more honest conversations with each other. So it fitted in very well with that. So I think the the way the, the, um, the initial program is set up and explained to people is really, really important and, and makes a big difference. Okay, that's a, that's a really interesting point because that's something that's very actionable as well. Rather than uh, just saying, "Here's a training course, come along." Well, well, yes, yeah, and 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 there was interesting thing about the timescale was that the the um, as it were the two worst worst performing groups in terms of participation, kind of a couple of days before I run the I ran those programs, the internal person was ringing up saying, "Oh, we've had a couple of dropouts, but I've got someone else to fill in the place," and it was that kind of like last minute filling the course. Whereas in the two higher performing groups. A month before, in, in both cases, a month before the course, they had a kind of pre-meeting for the participants to explain what the whole program was about and meet their coaches, which I'll say more about in a moment, and do some pre-course reading. So it was there was just generally much much 
better preparation. So when people did start the program themselves, they knew how it kind of fitted into the bigger picture. And I think that that stuff about pre-course expectations is very, very important. And, you know, in my experience as, a, as, a, as a, an external trainer going to organisations, some organisations do that incredibly well. And some do it very, very badly, really. So are you talking, when you say expectations, you also seem to be saying how it fits into the bigger picture. So you're kind of adding into where all this slots together which is not necessarily the same thing as expectations because your expectations could be this is what I intend to learn on the course or what I hope to learn on the course. Yes, and and, and you're right. But the key thing is 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 how it does fit into the bigger picture. Right. So to be crude about it, when people are told, oh, there's this training course, you'll find it really relevant to your job, you know, please show up tomorrow. That's going to be vastly less useful when people are told, as an organisation, here's a change we're going through. We want to bring about this change in our approach to leadership or this change in culture or we want to get our staff more engaged. And this whole programme will help you help you to do that, which in turn will help our organisation to get where it wants to. That thing about linking it into the bigger picture, I think, is really key. Right, so th- that's your sort of key finding from this bit, and 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 kind of how did you find how did you find that finding? <laughs> how did, I should phrase that better, shouldn't I? But I'm just I'm just kind of want to dig around, you know, in terms of the data. How did how did you come to that conclusion? Well, that that was one of the three things that made a difference. So I go on and talk about the other two. How I found that was really talking to the key person I was liaising with within the organisation, generally the uh, uh, an L&D person, and, and noticing how she or he set the whole programme up. And, uh, and uh, as I said, there's a, there's a big difference in how organisations do that. So that kind of pre-course expectations and link to the bigger picture is, is key thing number one. That wasn't particularly a surprise to me, but it was good to have it confirmed by the the evidence what came out of the program the thing that um factor number two that made a difference that shouldn't have surprised me that it did and it was this that the groups that really engaged in the process the groups that fell into that very high category 75 percent of them having three or more courageous conversations subsequently had a very high level of trust on the day, I could tell when I was facilitating the the program that they were they'd built a really good rapport with each other. They were trusting each other. They were willing to be very supportive of each other, and they were willing to be very challenging of each other as well. And the groups that where that was the case, perhaps not surprisingly, then went on to use the forum and to to engage in that peer learning. Whereas there were a couple of the groups that I facilitated, interestingly. Both of them were groups that, outside the training course, worked together as a team. They were two management teams of organisations. And in both of those cases, the level of kind of trust, perhaps surprisingly, wasn't that great. And interesting, I had feedback afterwards from the, the um, in one case, the, the, the leader of that team, in the other case, from the learning development person I was working with, uh, who said to me, well, actually, what this, you know, the, the, the group found the courageous conversation really, really interesting, but what they really need is some team building because there's not a very high level of trust in this team. And if you want the peer learning to work, if you want that kind of online forum to work and for people to be really supportive and really challenging each other, you've got to have the trust there. So interestingly, one of the the benefits of a face-to-face one-day or longer training event is that it enables people to build that trust 
And if you don't have that trust there, any kind of online learning isn't going to be that useful. Some while ago, I was doing some work on, on virtual teams, and I did a bit of kind of research on what makes virtual teams successful. And there's a guy called Richard Lepsinger, who's done a lot of really, really good research on what makes some virtual teams work better than others. And one of his key findings was that a virtual team that's had at least one face-to-face -face meeting is probably going to perform a lot better than a virtual team that is similar in every other respect that hasn't. And he, in his work on virtual teams, he makes a strong case for having a physical meeting, even if you've got a virtual team spread around the globe. He says at the start of a big project, it's worth flying them, bringing them all together so they can have that face-to-face -face meeting because the evidence is that the team will then work more effectively. And I think that's that thing about it's extremely hard to build trust online virtually, and it's much easier to to build it when you get people in the room together and i would say of of the of the kind of three factors that led to uh, people really actively engaging the program pre-course expectation pretty key i think this thing about having a high level of trust between participants and that's something that you can only really build if you have a face-to-face -face event i think that that i mean that obviously makes a lot of sense in terms of willingness to engage with other people is bound to be linked to how you feel about those other people not simply how you feel about the content and i think that echoes with some similar work that i'm doing at the moment around on, on, on a very similar thing actually where we're trying to get people to engage on a very similar thing actually where we're trying to get people to engage online as following a course and the people that are doing it the most are the ones that i think um the the team or the mini team the subgroup got the best relationship quickest those are the ones that are most active online. Yes, yeah. Well, that that's absolutely my findings on this as well. But in my, in my case, it's not a big enough sample that I would be able to draw a conclusion, other than the fact that, that just seems logical. So I'd be yes, slightly, yeah. slightly wary about drawing too many conclusions. But it's interesting that your more deliberate experiment has backed that up. Well, it has. And the other thing that was interesting is that the two two of the two of the groups of participants on my my experiment were already working as teams they were they were a management team of their organization and i'd kind of assumed but because they already worked together that they would have a high level of trust and would feel more comfortable about taking part in the online forum and in fact it was exactly the opposite i mean it may just really that's those, interesting yeah, I, I mean it may have just been unlucky that those teams didn't have a particularly high level of trust to begin with but the the, the teams that seemed to have been able to develop the trust most quickly, those that they worked in the same organization but didn't particularly know each other before the course. But at the end of a one-day program, they were, they got to know each other and to trust each other well enough. And, and I have to say, the, the some of the activities I do on the program are, are explicitly about helping people to, to trust each other, to be supportive of each other and to, and to challenge each other. So it, it was quite interesting that 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 turned out to be such a such a key thing of the program and not something you can take for granted either, I think. Do you think what you're just saying then about the fact that the team already knew each other and therefore, in that particular case, and again, we, we must be careful not to draw too many conclusions on, on, on a small sample, but do you think that's partly linked to learning may involve looking stupid because it involves taking risk and getting things wrong? Is there an unwillingness perhaps to do that in front of colleagues that you have to go back to work with the next day? potentially in front of people that are doing your performance management? Well, yes, yes. I, I think it I think it is that sort of um and, and it's possibly also linked to seniority as well. I mean I do have and I, I don't have the, the, the evidence of this, but I do have a kind of hunch that the higher up you go in an organizational hierarchy, 
the less willing you generally are to sort of experiment and ask the naive questions and and admit that you you don't know the answer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you have to know all the answers, don't you? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, there's a, a woman called Brené Brown who's done a lot of stuff on vulnerability. And one of her big things is is that about the higher up the organisation you go, the more you feel you've got to know all the answers and you never apologise, you always get it right. Whereas actually that... These days, that comes across as completely phony, and the, and we and we only trust people when they are willing to be to be vulnerable, and that that rings very true to me. I mean, interestingly, and I'm I'm um, I'm being careful here in terms of uh, kind of confidentiality because I haven't mentioned the names of the organisations, but one of the one of the organisations who came out in my kind of they came out in the high group, so they. Um, uh, 50% of the people had a couple of conversations. So there's quite a, quite a good level of interaction with the online forum, though from the course I'd done with them, not quite as much I'd expected. But in the conversation afterwards with, with the leader of that team, she said, well, actually, Larry, I've been a bit disappointed too with how little my colleagues have put on the forum. But what I would say is what has been absolutely brilliant about this programme is that it enabled me to have a conversation with one of my colleagues that I've been putting off having for the last three years and now we've had it it's transformed our relationship and because it's so sensitive I'm not going to put that on the forum because I just wouldn't want to say that in front of the other team members so I think that thing about kind of just what 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 you're willing to to how vulnerable you're willing to be in front of others especially if you are the team leader is, is quite critical really so I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, although in that example it was a sl- for, for a slightly different reason, I think. Yes, uh, yeah. But uh, so that's two of the three things, which was about having those pre-course expectations and understanding how it fits in with the big picture, and then secondly, having had that uh, environment of trust. So, what's the third? And the third one is that if people are going to really actively participate, put this stuff into practice, they need support, encouragement and challenge from within the organisation. So the two organisations that scored kind of very high uh, by my crew reckoning, so more than three quarters of the participants were uh, participating with at least three courageous conversations on the forum. They both came, both those organisations, they were quite systematic about supporting the participants through the six weeks of the programme. So in one case, it was the learning and development person that took it upon herself to kind of check in with participants, talk to them regularly and formally, encourage them to put posting on and arranged some face-to-face events, quite informal events where people could kind of just drop in for lunch and not necessarily everyone on the programme, but to almost like a, um, a physical action learning set and as a result of that, more postings appeared. And in the other case, the organisation organised quite a formal system of coaches where more senior managers would coach participants on the programme to help them to put the courageous conversations into programme. And, and, and this is it's no big news, the fact that if you've got that, that internal support, either from learning development or from coaches or indeed from your own manager, but it just reinforced to me how important that is that the, the application of learning depends so critically on whether more senior people within the organisation are willing to, to put some time into, into making that happen. I think also linked to that is the point you made about the systemic uh, nature of it, because a lot of times we put these things online and expect them just to flourish naturally in the same way as a conversation on Twitter or Reddit or Facebook or whatever is likely to just set off on its own 
under its own steam and it doesn't require any human intervention. But actually that's misleading and in fact in most cases what you do need is you do need to have a, a certain amount of uh, structure around it or support or whatever the word is just to make it happen. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And and when when I first started doing the first of these pilots, and the I was kind of thinking, oh, this will be great. Everyone will be posting on the forum and asking more resources. And initially, the take up was quite low. When I talked to other trainers about that, I said, God, you know, I've I've done this, and you know, only only about half of them have posted anything. And my colleagues were saying, well, got half. That's great. That's really good because uh, unless you're actually actively encouraging it, you're doing really well to get kind of 10 or 20%, let alone half of people. So I think that, that that's right. I think it's easy to assume that if you put the mechanism there, you put the forum there or access to resources, people will take it up. A few will, but most people will need some encouragement, some support. And it, it, it brings me back probably the, the final point I'd want to make in this podcast about the learning imperative because for all its downsides one of the things that training course uh, that a training course can do is it it encourages people to learn something the fact that they show up on the course there's an imperative there's a there's a a prompt to actually do some learning whereas if you simply say to people well it's all out there on the internet access it yourselves a lot of people won't and that thing about Giving people a prompt and encouragement, an imperative, a reason to learn, I think is 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 really really important, and that's why um, the groups, certainly in, in my fairly small and modest sample, the ones that really got the most learning out of it, run out to be the ones that internally there were either L and D people, coaches, or their managers actively encouraging them to to take part in the learning to put it into practice. Yeah, I think that is one of the key things about an actual formal learning event or whatever form it takes is the fact that you force people to get away from their desks and focus on on what is just learning something for a for a period of time that is one of the key factors and it is one of the drawbacks of uh the, the self access approach that's right that in i think a much given the the pressures on people in the workplace now a very very small number of people will access it without some kind of prompt or encouragement to do so a lot of the courses that I'm involved with, people tend to uh, have to do some kind of e-learning beforehand as a kind of module one, some pre-work. And you can guarantee that in most cases, maybe, I don't know, 60% won't have done it. And I understand why they won't have done it, because the very idea of e-learning just drains the energy from them. And it drains <laughs> it drains the energy from me. And I'm there selling the damn things. And I think about it, I think, oh, God, have I got to do this in preparation for the course? It just sucks me dry. So I can fully understand why people don't engage with that unless they're really forced to. Yeah, yeah, it's that imperative again. Whereas if if people, they they encounter something, either it's an activity on a course where they think, oh yeah, I would like to be a bit better at setting objectives or or better at motivating some of my staff, or, they, or better still, they encounter those things in real life as it were, then, then that imperative, that that little boost to learning is there, and I think that's that's uh, kind of brings full circle in terms of how how the world of learning developments change. What we've got to make it easier to do as as people in the world of learning development, particularly as trainers, is is to make that connection between the kind of demands people have in their job and make it easy for them to access the right kind of stuff that will really help. Yeah, it's going back to curating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that, Larry. That's a, a very interesting tour through the future, the very near future of learning and development and how we, the impact is really going to challenge our profession. And I think there's a lot of really interesting advice in there. So thank you very much for that. 
You're very welcome, Joe. And and as always, I mean, as well as uh, kind of sharing some of my musings, it's it's a great learning experience for me to talk this stuff through. So thank you very much, John. And for me to listen to it. So, and I always say to people on this podcast, even though I've been doing learning and development for 20, 25 years, I have learned so much since I started recording this. It's It's been an incredible experience. So I would say the same. Extremely good to learn from you. Thank you very much, Larry. You're very welcome. So that was me talking to Larry Reynolds. I thought that was a pretty good one. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it useful. Please continue to support this podcast. And we have a good one ready for January, The Five Secrets to Accelerated Learning with Christina Gad. So have a good Christmas, New Year, Hanukkah, holidays, whatever. And I'll see you in January.